Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. As David said, it's, uh, we're going to be uh, looking together at the book of Joshua for the next uh, number of weeks or maybe a few months or whatever God wants to show us in this wonderful book. And I'm really excited to spend some time in the Old Testament. I'm really excited to be in a, in a book that's based in the Old Testament. And, um, you know, Joshua is a, is a very significant book, as is every book of the Bible, of course. Um, and what, we were, what I'm going to do today really is sort of set the scene uh, and give us the context of the story in which Joshua is set. If you open your Bibles in, in Genesis, in Genesis 1, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, and they describe essentially the leading up to the promised land. And uh, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we actually dip into the promised land during the time and the life of, of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. They spend time there and they leave that place to go to Egypt with Joseph at the end of Genesis. And then there's a, a 400 year gap, essentially, between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, um, there or thereabouts. And then we have a leading up to the promised land. And so the first five books of our Bible describe that period of history from creation and God's original intention and then a, a kind of process of degeneration that takes place. It takes place in the individual, Adam and Eve's sin, spreads into the family, Cain kills Abel, spreads into the world and we see the flood and we see Babel and this moving away, this degeneration and shift away from God's plan and God's purpose. And then what does God do? God begins to restore everything, and he does it by beginning the regeneration with an individual. As degeneration began with the individual, regeneration begins with the individual. And you know, the world doesn't get changed until the individual gets changed. And it starts with Abraham. A man is called. A man from Ur. Great name for a place. Where are you from? Ur. Ur of the Chaldeans. And he travels with his father, Terah, across towards the promised land. And then he enters into this place. He's looking for a place that God has called him to. And then we see that story unfold. And we'll pick up a little bit more of that be- uh, later on. And then you get to Joshua. So if you turn to De- Deuteronomy, you've got right in there the Torah between your index finger and your thumb, if you're holding it the way that I am. There's the Torah right there. Goodness knows how many years of history, because we're going right back to creation. Okay? And then we come into the book of Joshua, and Joshua essentially stands alone in its history because it's a book of transition, it's a book of movement, it's a book of shifting from the Torah up to the point where they're on the edge of the land of, of Canaan into the promised land, and covers around about 25 to 30, maybe 40 years of history. And it's during that time that the people of God are moving into the place that God has promised them. It's a link book in our history books of our Bibles. And then the next 11 books from Judges all the way through to Nehemiah describe then life in the land. Apart from the fact there are a couple of exiles that are in exile into Assyria that takes place for Israel in the north. And then later on a Babylonian exile for the tribes of Judah that then return. And we read about Daniel's life in exile. And then the return to the land with Zerubbabel, it's a great name, and Nehemiah. And so Joshua is a very significant book. It's a book of conquest. It's a book of occupation. It's a book of victory and campaign and, and God revealing his authority to the nations. Yeah. 
You know, a nation's power was very much directed at the, the power of its God. If your nation was strong in, in warfare, strong in battle, essentially you were saying, and therefore our God is strong. And God is bringing his people and he's proving to the nations that he is the almighty God. Just think about when he leads his people out of Egyptian slavery, the plagues that God brings onto Egypt. The first plague is darkness. The last but one plague is, uh, sorry, the first, the first plague is Nile to blood. The last but one plague is darkness. Those two major Egyptian gods, the God of the river Nile, Happy, and the God of the sun, Ra, are both shut down by God who reveals his ultimate authority and might to the nations. And so there's a description here of God's people moving into their inheritance that God had promised them hundreds of years before through Abraham. And we'll look at that story in a minute. But one of the things that I want us to really take hold of when we read this story, this may have been set three and a half thousand years ago, but we mustn't look at the Bible with rose-tinted glasses. These are real people in a real place during a real time. And what are we? Real people? Just, just check. Maybe check the person next to you if they look friendly or maybe like a hologram. Real people in a real place at a real time. That's the only place that God deals with us. Sometimes we read the Bible and we, and we read things with this kind of slightly overly holy view of things that happen. We sanitize the Bible. But God is a God of earthiness. There's mud right at the beginning. There's spit. There's blood. There's other fluids I won't mention. But it's all in here. We can't be precious about it. God is interested in the nitty-gritty, the reality of our lives. And when you read a book like Joshua, you can't help but miss it. There's all sorts of things that are happening. And God wants you to know, he wants us to know that he's involved in our real lives. Not the kind of the two hours where we might try to think, this is where I live my Christian life and I present this kind of spiritual, everything's okay, and then the, next, the rest of the week I'm battling with it and God's nowhere to be seen. No, God is involved in every aspect of our lives. Wherever we are, every challenge that we face, every situation, every, where we go, he's with us. And that's one of the promises that he makes to Joshua at the beginning of this wonderful book. And so I hope that as we read these stories, we'll, we'll actually... As we read about what Joshua is doing, as we read about what the spies are doing, get shoulder to shoulder with these people. Move around with them. Recognize the time that passes. We flip a page. 40 years have gone. They weren't in stasis for that period of time, just waiting. They were living their lives. Men and women of faith. Men and women facing genuine challenges and, and significant difficulties and real opportunities but having to learn to live by faith and obedience in God. And here's the thing, they barely had anything to go by. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. We live this side of the cross. We have greater revelation. We have greater authority. We have greater power than any person that we read about in this book. We are so blessed. So Lord, I pray that as we just spend time looking at your word together today. I pray that you'd help us to see the picture that you're painting for us, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to understand the context 
that this story is set in. And I pray, Lord, that we would see it and catch afresh that this isn't hypothetical. These aren't fairy tales. Lord, these are real stories about real people that, Lord, you've written and recorded for us, for our benefit, Lord, that we might learn and be warned and be instructed and be challenged and be blessed. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do that in us and through us as we look at your word together. Amen. So I'm going to start and and look at this first period of time that we see in the the book. Did you see that? Did we catch that? That was just for Dave Batston, that was. And and, and what you'll see up on the screen there, anywhere where it's green represents the land, and anywhere that's white represents being out of the land, okay? And so the story of Canaan and the, the name Canaan is first mentioned, where do you think Canaan is first mentioned? Genesis. Genesis 9, he's Noah's grandson. And Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives that are saved through the floodwaters. God saves them, preserves them in the ark. They come out the other side. God has done the etch-a-sketch. He's shaken the earth. He's flooded it. He's washed it. He's cleansed it. They come out the other side and they've been saved through the waters. And Noah plants a vineyard, amongst other things. And then he enjoys his wine too much. And he gets drunk. And he falls asleep. You know, I love how honest the Bible is. But Noah gets drunk in his tent. And he falls asleep in his tent, naked. And Ham comes in and sees that his father is naked, asleep in his tent, heavily under the influence of of wine. And he thinks, I'm going to get a laugh out of this. I'm going to go get my two brothers. And while Ham gets his brothers, um, Shem and Japheth, instead of coming in to look at their father's shame, they they put a robe on their shoulders and they walk backwards into the tent to cover their father's shame. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Us covering one another and caring for one another, honoring one another. And then Noah comes round. And while he's still not feeling great, he recognizes what his, his youngest son Ham has just done. And he doesn't curse Ham. He curses Ham's son, Canaan. And if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 9, you'll see what Noah says. This is serious stuff. But he's been dishonored. And you might think, well, that's a bit unfair, Noah. You had too much to drink. Well, this is what happens in our stories. And in verse 24, Noah wakes up from his stupor, says. And he learned what Ham, his younger son, has done. And he curses Ham's son, Canaan. And Canaan is mentioned a number of times. And the curse is this, may Canaan be cursed, may he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed, and may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth, and may Japheth share the prosperity of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And so there we see this kind of description of of Canaan becoming the servant of Noah's other sons. And it's Shem who becomes the father in the line of Abraham. Abraham is a descendant from Shem. And so what we see is that God has already promised through his servant, through his prophet, that Canaan would be the servant to Shem and to Shem's offspring, of which Abraham was part. And then we have the Tower of Babel. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What do they do? Let's gather around this tower and stay here. And God says, fine, I'm going to change you going to change you and, and give you all sorts of different languages. You're not going to speak Welsh anymore. You're going to speak lots of different languages. And he scatters them throughout the earth. And then finally, we read in Genesis 12, this 
picture of regeneration, God restoring things and calling the man, Abraham. And he calls him to come and to find a land and to be based where? In the land of Canaan. And sure enough, Canaan travels and he comes into the promised land. And it's in that place that God meets with Abraham. So if you turn to Genesis 15, you'll see God makes a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham is told to take some animals and cut them in half. And so he takes a cow and he chops it in half. Do you imagine how hard work that is? We read, it's like, oh, he split a heifer in half. But you try that on a Wednesday, it's really difficult. Splits it. God says, right, now I want a ram. Splits a ram. They're burly animals, aren't they? Lays it in half. Now take a goat. Splits the goat. And now a turtle dove. Oh, finally, like a manageable animal. And then a, a young pigeon. And these animals are lying, completely slaughtered. And there's offal and there's blood and there's all sorts of things all over the land. And he falls asleep because he's exhausted from slicing up animals. And then God appears to him in a vision. And God says, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. And then he begins to describe what's going to happen to his... But he says, your children will end up in a land. They'll be enslaved. But don't worry, I'll lead them out. And here's the proof. Here's my covenant. I'm going to pass through those animals that you've halved. And God himself passes through these animals as a sign of the covenant. How does God do it? There's a smoking cooking pot and a flaming torch. And these two things in Abraham's sleep flow between these animals as God establishing his covenant. He says, don't worry, they'll be enslaved, but I'll save them and I'll bring them out and I'll bring them back to the land that I've promised. And he reiterates the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17 and he changes Abraham's name from Abraham, which means esteemed father, to Abraham, father of many nations. And he says, you're going to be a man of influence, a man of covenant, and the whole world will be blessed through you and your offspring. You'll be a father of many nations. And so we have that covenant established. And at that time, apart from a little dip into Egypt, Abraham lives in and around the promised land that we read about, Canaan. And then baby Isaac is born, the son of promise, finally born to Abraham and Sarah. And this little boy is given to them, promised by God. Abraham, 100 years old. Sarah, 90 years old. But the promise of God stands firm. The promise of God stands firm. Physically impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. Abraham marries Rebecca, and they have two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, although he's born second, steals his brother's birthright, buys his brother's birthright, steals his blessing off his father, and then makes a run for it. And while he's on the run, he's returning back to the land, he meets with God, and God meets Jacob in a way that he understands Jacob was a wrestler and a twister and a con man, and it's in a wrestling match that God meets with him and changes his name. And Jacob becomes the father of the 12 tribes that are going to become the nation of Israel, and he renames Jacob Israel. And again, this is still in the land. Who was Jacob's favorite sons? Joseph and Benjamin. Why? Because they were the sons of Rachel, his most beloved. And the brothers hated Joseph. There he is with his coat. It's only one color this time. And in Genesis 37 to 50, we read about the story of Joseph. And Joseph was sold into slavery, into where? Egypt. And so the end of Genesis ends with God's people living now, no longer in the land, but in Egypt. So they've shifted into 
the white there, and the, the pyramids were probably built by this point as well, so that's factually correct, okay? historically accurate. <laughs> it's all factually correct, thank you. And then we have this period of time, literally centuries in Egypt, and nothing is said between the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of Exodus. Other than this, then, when we come into Exodus, there was a new king in town, new king in the land, and he knew nothing of Joseph, and he knew nothing about what they had done, and they begin to enslave God's people, enslave the Israelites. And so who does God call? Who does God rise up to lead the people? Moses. Moses' name, the word name Moses in Hebrew means to draw out. So if he was born today, he'd probably be called Drew. I don't know. <laughs> but that's essentially it. And he was there to draw God's people out. And there's this wonderful story of Pharaoh trying to kill this boy of promise. And what does he do? This boy of promise ends up in Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh's feeding him and clothing him and educating him and looking after him and making sure he gets all of his jabs and all of his meals. God's got a wonderful sense of humor. The enemy has tried to kill him, and now Pharaoh's looking after him. And he grows up 40 years in Pharaoh's house, but he knows that he's an Israelite. He knows of his Jewish ancestry. He knows who he is. And he sticks up for an Israelite slave who's being beaten, and he defends him, and then he realizes he's got to run for it. Spends 40 years looking after sheep in the wilderness. God meets him at a burning bush. You're on holy ground. It's time that you go back. You need to lead my people out. And so he goes back to... Egypt with his brother Aaron and they lead God's people out and finally after the plagues and after the Passover they come to the Red Sea because Pharaoh's finally said yeah go Pharaoh changes his mind but at this point they're at the Red Sea Moses holds his staff across the water the waters part and they go across on dry land I just want to say this just just so you know I I've got a degree and I've got some A-levels I don't want to brag about it too late but we're intelligent people. I totally believe this happened. Yeah. Just, I just want to say that, okay? This is not an allegory. No, no, no. This is not a nice story that we can get a spiritual lesson that somebody came up with. I believe God can part waters. Yeah. I believe God can send plagues. Yeah. I believe God can do all things. I believe God can harden hearts and soften hearts. I believe God can do all of those things. And I believe that how many people it was could cross that land because God can do anything. My God can do anything. Your God can do anything. Just thought I'd put that out there. And so there he is. He draws God's people out of slavery and into the wilderness. And they start to move where? Towards the land of promise. And while they're on their way, they meet the Amalekites. Moses is blue. Joshua is pink. That sounds like a romantic poem. That's all I'm saying, okay? I've not got anything else. <laughs> Moses is blue. Joshua is pink. And we have the story of Joshua fighting. This is the first time he's mentioned. Exodus 17, verses 9 and 10. He's called to fight against the Amalekites who have risen up against God's people. And while they're fighting, Moses is on the mountainside with Aaron and Hur. And as his arms are raised, can you raise your arms? It means I'm winning. If your arms drop down, oh, getting pegged back. Arms up again. I think Moses had a bit of fun with it for a while, didn't you? <laughs> And he's holding, no he didn't, he's holding his arms out and then those two faithful men stand alongside him and while they're holding his arms up, this wonderful picture of teamwork, <laughs> while Joshua's on the ground fighting and the victory comes. No superstars, just together, serving God together, functioning in the ministries that they had, the part they had to play. 
Joshua and his men fighting, Moses on the mountain being supported by those around him, and God brings a great victory through Joshua and Moses and everyone else. And then finally they come to Mount Sinai. You know, I often thought and assumed it was just Moses that went up the mountain, but actually it seems really obvious that Joshua was with him every step of the way. They go up the mountain with the elders, the elders get left, and and Moses continues to go up. But it seems like also Joshua goes with him. Joshua had these incredible insights. And he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And I don't think he took a packed lunch. I don't think he had a hamper with him. I think in the presence of God, he was sustained in whichever way God chose to do it. He could feed Elijah through ravens. He could feed, bring manna from heaven. He could make quail land in the camp. He could do whatever he wanted. And I don't know if Moses didn't eat or drink, but was just sustained because he was so much in the presence of God that physical nourishment didn't matter because he was just doing what the Father wanted and it was his strength. And I don't know, it's a bit of a mystery. But I also believe this, Joshua was right there with him. Because as he's coming down the mountain, the only person with Joshua, you can hear what's happening down in the camp because they've gone and built a golden calf, typical. There's a big party going on, and it's Joshua who says to Moses, there's a commotion in the camp, and they go down. But Joshua was there. And they come down, and then the Bible tells us this, that they received, uh, Moses received instructions to build a tent, but before the tent was built, they traveled again through the wilderness. And how did God lead them through the wilderness? Pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. Smoke during the day, fire at night. What was the vision that Abraham had of God making his covenant promise of delivering his people? Pillar of smoke, a smoking cooking pot, and a flaming torch. God was saying, it's me. I'm doing it. I'm doing what I said I'd do. Yeah, 380 years may have passed, but my promise hasn't wavered or waned or changed Time doesn't affect God's promises. And then finally Moses builds a tent and he puts it outside the camp. I think he just wants to get away from the people sometimes. And he builds a camp outside. And when he goes to that tent, Moses' tent, this isn't the tabernacle, this is Moses' tent. When he goes there and goes to enter the tent, as soon as he walks in, what happens? The cloud descends on top of the tent, and it says Moses met with God as a man meets with his friend face to face. Guess who was there? Joshua. How do we know? Because when Moses left, all the Israelites were standing outside their own tents, watching on, agog. It's a great word. Please say agog. Agog. And there's the presence of God. And then Moses leaves, and who stays? Joshua. Stays in Moses' tent, meeting with God. And then finally they come to the edge of the promised land. And they get to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And it's in that place that Moses sends in 12 spies. But just before he sends Joshua in, the Bible tells us this, he renames Joshua. Joshua's name was Hosea, and then he changes his name to Joshua. Hosea means salvation. Joshua means the Lord saves. God saves. Yahweh saves. And so he's renamed and he goes into the land. And when he comes back out of the land, he and Caleb both have a positive report. They all came back and they said, this is the land of promise. This is an amazing land. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's it's abundant with everything that God has said. But 10 of them said this, but they're really big. And they're really scary. Those grapes are giving them big muscles. 
And that honey has given them strength and we, we can't fight against them. And, and Joshua and Caleb, Caleb wasn't even an Israelite. Caleb came from outside. He just joined with the people of God. Joshua and Caleb are like, we can do this. And the people say this, let's stone them. <laughs> let's kill them. And God intervenes. And God says this, because of your lack of faith, you've decided to go with fear. You want to go back to Egypt rather than go in and take the promised land that I gave you. And so they end up wandering for 38 years. God says this, every person under the age of 20 will now die in the wilderness apart from Joshua and Caleb. You know, I, I think, imagine you're in that situation. You know those times where you feel like I probably backed the wrong horse? I probably went with the wrong option. That is serious, isn't it? That we're going to die in this desert because of my lack of faith. That was serious stuff. But then I was thinking about this. What about poor Joshua and Caleb? They're like, we're up for it now, though. We've got to walk around with this lot for 38 years. Can we not go in? Like, we have to wait this out. And for 38 years, these two men of faith continued to walk with those who'd held them back but it seems like there was no chip on the shoulder. They just kept going. They kept persevering because they were men of faith. But just think about that. Think about what you could be coming into and enjoying. If somebody said to you, you can retire tomorrow. We've got a beautiful villa for you in the most glorious place you'd ever want to be. There's a wonderful church that you'll be so blessed. And everybody else goes, no, nah, we don't believe it's going to happen. They're like, okay, 38 years, and then you can go there. And he was anointed then by Moses to lead because at the end of that time of wandering in the wilderness, Moses lays his hand on him because God says there's a spirit of leadership on this man. This man Joshua is to lead. And what, word does, what words did Moses speak over Joshua three times at the end of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 34, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And be strong and courageous. And he lays hands on him to lead the people of God. And then it says Moses died on Mount Nebo, which overlooked the promised land. And then at the beginning of Joshua, if you turn in your Bibles to Joshua 1. God makes this statement. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. There's a lot to unpack in this, just this one little bit. But God says this, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come. You know, if there are many things that we'll understand, I think, and learn about when we look at these stories is the timing of God, which is perfect. God said to Abraham, the people can't return to the land yet because the time is not right for the sin of the Amorites to have reached its fullness. God does things in fullness of time. He is not limited to linear time in the way. We're outside of time, but he sees things in fullness of time. And this was the fullness of time for Joshua. The time has come, Joshua, for you to lead. My people, the Israelites, across the Jordan, into the land I'm giving them. And then there's time and again, God says this, I will, I am, I will, I am. And it's because of those statements that Joshua is able to go and take the land and be strong and courageous. Three times God says to him, be strong and courageous. Be strong 
and very courageous. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. Why do you think God said that to him like that? I think there's lots of reasons. But I think partly it was because of what Moses had said to him. But I also think this. Joshua might not have felt very strong or courageous. (laughs) This was a big thing. He was about to lead the people of God into the land of promise. And sometimes, you know, we, it's, it's good to hear the promises of God or to remember times when we've heard the promises of God or God reassuring us through his word, but that has to come to us constantly because God is always wanting us to move forward in his plan and in his purposes. There's always new times and things for us to step into and to be reminded of being strong and courageous. And he sends spies into the land and there's a period of time where it just seems like Joshua just gets really, really busy. He just gets on with it sends the leaders through the land and says, uh, through the people and says, prepare yourselves, get your provisions ready. We're going to move in three days' time. He sends spies into the land. He deals with two and a half tribes who've decided to stay to the east of the River Jordan. There's a lot to say about that. But he says, you need to come and fight with us to take the land. And he sends how many spies into the land? Two. How many spies came back from the land with a good report the first time around? Two. I think he wasn't going to get caught out this time. And two men go in to Jericho. And they spy out the land. And it's while they're there, they meet Rahab, the prostitute, who's listed in the, line, uh, the messianic line of Jesus Christ, who's held up as a woman of faith in Hebrews 11. What was she? A prostitute. No background, no sin, no, no, nothing is, ever stops us. David said, we all come through faith. Doesn't matter what your past is. You come through faith. You're part of God's people. And she lowers this red cord to say, I'm, I'm, I'm nailing my colors to the mast. And there's this kind of Passover picture. They painted their door frames with blood. Now she's hanging this red cord from her window. She's saying, I'm with God's people. When judgment comes, she's going to be saved because she knows who she belongs with. And they escape. I like that. And they go back and they give a good report. And then Joshua says, right, it's time to go. And what does Joshua do? He leads them through the River Jordan. We see these similarities to Moses. Sends in spies. Leads them through parted waters. God is showing them, this is my man, this is my leader. And he leads them through on dry ground. The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, their feet touch the River Jordan, the Jordan parts, and they walk through on dry land. I believe that happened. During flood time. I think God was enjoying that. The Jordan was bursting its banks. That's how full it was. And God says, doesn't matter. Waters stop, and it build all the way up to Adam, the town up, up, upstream. And they go across the land, and when they cross the land, they collect stones, 12 stones, and they build a pillar of remembrance, and then they're circumcised, they purify themselves, they celebrate their very first meal together that comes from the land. No longer are they being fed by manna from heaven and quail. Now they can go and collect their crops and they gather in corn and they, bre- they make bread and they break bread together and they share Passover. There's this sense of covenant and commitment and togetherness and enjoying the benefits of the new land that they've just entered. Have we not just done that? And then Joshua is ready to go but he has an encounter with an angel. And, and the angel, and, and Joshua says this, whose side are you on? And the angel says, no, that's not the question. The question is, whose side are you on? This is holy ground, mate. Take your shoes off. We have this picture again of an encounter 
with this mighty, awesome, potentially it's the sun, I don't know, and taking his shoes off because he's on the holy ground, which is exactly what Moses does at the burning bush. These parallels between these two mighty men. And then they go to Jericho, the first major city to take. When um, I was in the car, and uh, there was a story of a teacher who was doing an RE lesson. And he said, uh, who, uh, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? Just silence in the class. So little Billy puts his hand up and he says, uh, Sir, just want to say it wasn't me. <laughs> and the teacher said, Billy, um, that's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. Go and tell the headmaster what's just happened. So little Billy goes off to the headmaster, knocks on the door, the headmaster calls him in, the door's open, and, and Billy said, uh, Mr. Thomas sent me, sir. He asked the question to the class, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And I said, sir, it wasn't me, sir. And the headmaster said, Billy, I know you. I know you're a good kid. I know you'd never knock down the walls of Jericho. So he called Mr. Thomas into my office. So Mr. Thomas comes in and the teacher says, Billy's just told me you've accused him of knocking down the walls of Jericho. He's a good lad. I know his parents. He would never do anything like that. And while he's having a go at the, Mr. Thomas, who's like in shock, the school governor's walking past the front door and the headmaster calls the school governor in. He said, excuse me, governor. Mr. Thomas here said that Billy knocked down the walls of Jericho. Billy said it wasn't him and I believe him. And the governor said, I don't know if it was Billy or not. All I know is it's going to be a CapEx expense that's going to have to come out of the school budget. <laughs> And of course, the ludicrous thing is, we all know who knocked down the walls of Jericho. I just like that story. Anyway. <laughs> and they're given specific instructions, not the kind that we'd be used to. Walk around six times, once a day for six days, in silence, blowing trumpets. Then on the seventh day, walk around six times and then blow the trumpet. And then they do that. They obey God, even though what they're told to do doesn't make any logical sense. As a battle plan, that is not a traditional... Alexander the Great never tried that move. But they do that, and they're obedient to God. And they're two weeks of marching around a city, and then finally, the walls come down, and they enter in, and they take the city. And now they're feeling really good about themselves. They're thinking, we can do this. And God says this, make sure that whole city is set aside for complete and utter destruction, and you don't take anything from it. That city is my city. David talked about the tithe. There are some things that are holy to the Lord. The tithe is holy to the Lord. It's his. I don't get to dip into God's, what, is, what belongs to him. I bring it to him faithfully. This is kind of a picture of that. It's like, this is the first fruits. This city is the first fruits of the land that I'm giving you. And I'm saying this, set it apart for me. And people are thinking, oh yeah, but there's such nice stuff here. They've got great goblets. They've got a really nice cutlery. And they've got beautiful crockery. And this all survived the collapsed walls. I don't know how. But, but we see this story. And God says, no, you set it all apart. You, you raise it to the ground. And I don't want you to take anything. And then they go to the next place, this seemingly small place that seems insignificant compared to the scale and the strength of Jericho. And they say, just send in 3,000 men. It'll be enough. And they go to fight AI. And what happens? They get routed by this small town. And they tear their clothes and they weep and they cry out to God and they're lying in the dust. And God says, what are you doing in the dust? Get up. What did I say to you? I said, what that was in that city was mine, but somebody didn't listen to me. Do you know what? There are things that we do that don't, they don't just affect us. They affect the body. I know this is old covenant, but there is a principle 
that what I do affects us. What you do affects us. If we all withheld our tithe, if we all withheld our offering, we would have come here today. We might have had a revita and a glass of water if we're not on a meter. And we wouldn't have met in a building. We would have found a common ground and we'd have stood there, cold, handing around and breaking revita together. But we're not. We're in a wonderful building. We enjoyed wonderful refreshments, served by wonderful people, but that's because we're part of something together. We're a family. And what I do doesn't just affect me. It doesn't just affect Sarah and our children. It affects all of us in different degrees. And there's a man who has done something. He's taken what was set apart for the Lord. And all the people are gathered. They've just lost a battle. And God says, tribe of Judah. And all the tribe of Judah are standing there. And all the other tribes are like, clan of Zerah. And all the other clans of Judah. Family of Zimri. Can you imagine what this must have been like? How fearful and awesome this was. Family of Zimri step up. Achan. And he knows that's it now. There's no more men above him. He has to take responsibility for himself and his household. And judgment comes. And we have this fear of the Lord. This sober moment in the history of, of Israel, and they have to bring a judgment against that sin. Scary, but it happened. And as a result, that is dealt with, and they're able to take AI, and, and they begin to move through the land. And they begin to take all of the promises that God had given them. They lose the battle to AI. Achan and his family are judged, and they bring a judgment. And I'll just finish with this, and we'll pick some other stuff up soon, but I hope this is okay, just setting the scene of the story. But this is real people, real places. And I just want us to have a quick look at the movement that takes place because there was a real wisdom to what they did. Moses had just uh, not long died on Mount Nebo, which was uh, near this area here. And uh, So if you can see that green arrow brings them all the way up to a place called Heshbon. And you can see Mount Nebo just below it in green there between Jahaz and Heshbon on that side. Oh, actually, I've got a pointer, haven't I? I'm not afraid to use it. There you go. And the Amorites had been an enemy to them that they were to bring judgment against in in wiping them out. And and it's from that place that they cross up to the River Jordan and they enter a place called Gilgal. And for them, Gilgal, it's green there, becomes a real kind of center place for them. That's a place where the ark rests, where the tabernacle probably stays for a period of time. It becomes a bit of a capital for them at this point. And they enter the land right at the center point to the east of the River Jordan. Two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh decide that they want to stay on this side of the River Jordan. It was a good place. The issue was this, it wasn't the best place. They settled for something that was good instead of going for God's best. That's an issue. It becomes an issue, particularly in the book of Judges. And so they, they, we, we, they, they come in and they, they cross the River Jordan and they enter Gilgal and that becomes their headquarters. And the first place they take is Jericho, and you'll see their progress on this little map on the left-hand side here. And then from Jericho, they go to Ai. And it's Ai, they suffer a defeat, and then they rally, they repent, and they're able to take that land. Can you imagine what's beginning to happen in the people around them? Jericho had already knew they were on the edge. The king was already worried in Jericho. And then the Gibeonites, they come along, they, they fake it. They travel five miles, pretend they've traveled hundreds of miles, And they say, we'll be your servants. Make a covenant with us. 
And it says this, Joshua and the leaders consulted the Gibeonites, and they looked at the physical evidence, but they didn't consult the Lord. It's a very telling statement. And they make a covenant with these people, and sure enough, then they realize, you only live by there. And they were close people to them, but they have to maintain that covenant with them. And the people, the kingdoms down here in the south are getting very uh, afraid, particularly in Jerusalem, which is kind of next on the map. So the king of Jerusalem rallies uh, four other kings from the south, and they try and attack Gibeon. And now the Israelites have got to fight the Gibeonites because, uh, with the Gibeonites because they've made a covenant with them. And Joshua goes, and sure enough, they take the southern kingdoms. And there's this great battle. They travel at night from, Gibe- uh, from Gilgal across. And they take the southern kings by surprise in their armies. And they battle them. And as they begin to rout them, the armies flee. And God sends hailstones. I feel like a weatherman now. If you're in Giza, there are threats of life-threatening hailstones that will be falling between 2 and 3 p.m. So maybe stay indoors. And it says the hail from heaven killed more men than the Israelite soldiers killed. God was moving on their behalf. He always goes ahead of us. He always goes alongside us. And then Joshua prays this incredible prayer. He says, Lord, let the sun stay up. And so the sun stays in the sky. Somehow, something happens where the day is extended so that they can finish the battle. And sure enough, they take those five kings and they bring them and Joshua brings them before the people and he says, right, everybody put your foot on their heads. Put your foot on their necks. This is what we're here to do. We're here to take the land. The enemy can't stand against us. I think they begin to believe him at this point. And then they go back to Gilgal and now they've conquered centrally. They've split the country in two. They've taken the south The north are getting very scared. And so they go up a Hazor, come down to try and attack them. But they they, they meet them there already, the Israelites, and they take Hazor at the waters of Merom. And the whole land is beginning to be subdued and occupied. And then the story then talks about not just overcoming the land, but then beginning to distribute it so that the people worked out which parts of the land they were to live in. There's more I could say, but I think that will do for today. But I just want to set the scene. And I want us, as we read this book, to have a little bit more, hopefully, of an insight of of the place, the people, the movement, what was happening, and that they were all built on top of everything else that God had done. You know, God doesn't do things in our lives in isolation. You're a product today of so many different things. I'm a product of so many different things, of how I've been brought up, of where I've lived, of who's around me. But God wants us to be defined by his promises. God wants us to be led by his promises. God wants us to know that he's always with us. Just go back to those verses in Joshua 1. I just want to, just like to read this over us this morning in, in closing. You know, as we go from this place, where you live, where God has placed you, you're not there by chance. We're a people of mission. And God wants us to be a people of miracles. That's what Joshua is all about, mission and miracles. And as, as we go, God goes with us. We take him with us. And verse 3 of, of Joshua 1, it says, I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set your foot will be on the land I've given you. 
And then in verse 5, it says this. No one, and let me say this, nothing will be able to stand against you as long as you live. For I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one to lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors. Be strong and very courageous. Can I ask you to listen to this? Be careful to obey all the instructions that I've given you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As we read this book, we're reading the instructions of God. Reading the word of God. Allow his word to minister to you to show you and to lead you and to know that he's with you wherever you go. I just ask you to rest your hand on the person next to you. I just would like to pray for us. As long as you feel comfortable, I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable, but just to pray. Can I ask you to pray for the person next to you and just say, Lord, let them be bold and courageous. Lord, let them know that you're with them. Holy Spirit, I reassure them right now that you're with them that you'll not fail them or abandon them. Lord, I pray as they read your word, reveal truth to them. Reveal who they are, Lord. Reveal, Jesus, who you are. Lord, I just speak to them now and say and charge them with this, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.